I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and with me today, as always, is Peter Hart. Now, Pete, we're going to continue today the uh, the new series, the new series it's on the uh, Fife and Four Far. And this one is entitled On the Brink. On the Brink, yes. Yeah, um, you might think, hang on, this is the third episode in. <laughs> Any fighting? Well, this is what happened to the Fife and Four Fars, the Fife and Four Fars. They... they they're waiting, 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 training, 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 and nothing ever seems to happen. And now it's 1944, March 1944. Yeah. And at, at this point, they, they, they move into the cavalry barracks at Aldershot. Well, hang on, haven't we had that before, Gary? Yeah, it's back to the future. <gasps> do, 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 do. Yeah, in 1940, they'd, they'd move this now. That time it was a, a different barracks. This time they're moving into Warburg barracks, but it's still just a cavalry barracks. It, probably wasn't much different you know but uh, what's really happening what's 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 lying in front of them like a like a a, a sort of sausage oh <laughs> i've gone back to saying sausage <laughs> uh, it's the opening of the second front it's it's obviously uh nigh Whoa. but of course they didn't really know where they were going or when uh, and as the days went by a, a somewhat fevered atmosphere developed after a period of wild rumors they finally got a real clue as to what the what the future held for them. And you're going to tell us what Trooper James Donovan of B Squadron has to say. Aye. <laughs> we were issued with French money. We were throwing this money in like confetti playing pontoon. You've never seen so many notes flying about. So we knew we were going to France. Inside, you were a bit nervous. You knew it was going to come sometime. So you were glad it was now. And let's get it over with and done with. You were apprehensive, but you also look at your mates next to you and you say to yourself, well, I'm not going to let myself down in front of them. That must be very common. It's that, that idea, isn't it? You, you're not going to let your mates down. You're not going to show you're scared. You, 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 they seem to be brave. You're going to be with them. Um, I think that's that's fairly universal amongst soldiers, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And and you, you certainly you know want to retain control of your bowels. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you've had a lo- long-standing problems with that over your life, I know. And your dog seems to have inherited it yeah. from you in some now, a big clue... Oh, are well, we changing to something? ...that it would uh, be soon was the accelerated waterproofing programme for the Shermans, the honey tanks and all the regimental lorries, half-tracks and jeeps. Now, this is a huge programme which had commenced in May 1944. And uh, how do you think it went down with the lads? Oh, <laughs> the lads loved it. They'd be so pleased to have a chance to do a, something positive like that. And, and you're going to give a, a, bit, a bit of a report from that a trooper, trooper Gordon Fiddler. He was in 4 Troop A Squadron. The worst thing we were ever put on was when we were waterproofing the tanks. All the engine plates, which amounted to about 12 of different sizes, some of them took two men. All the plates had to be lowered, and for each plate there was a gasket. The main thing was Bostic. We were supplied with tubs and tubes of this. When we put it on, it hardened. I'm still taking Bostic out of my fingers now. We had weeks and weeks of it. Now, the, the final touch was uh, uh, if they landed in a dangerous situation, that they had to immediately get rid of the, the, the waterproofing or the engine wouldn't work properly. I mean, the, the engines would work, but they wouldn't work for long with Bostic all over them. Uh, so there was a method of, of getting getting them back almost immediately to function normally. And uh, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna say what uh, Trooper Roy Valance, one of the, the heroes of this series, for Troop A Squadron says, we put explosive round the waterproofing of the turret, the gun, and, and the chute over the exhaust. The theory being that if we landed and we were opposed, we could blow off the waterproofing that was sealing everything up without getting out, and then fight. <laughs> that shit shoot. <laughs> that shit shoot was shot. Our favourite poem. Now, barrack room cynics, they might scoff, but at this time, it was obvious that the 11th Armour Division and therefore the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yeomanry, were destined to take part in the 2nd Front operation. D-Day. Well, not D-Day. The, the operations that followed it, yeah. Now, on the 26th of May, the whole regiment was put on six hours' notice to be ready to move. Oh, final preparations got to be made, haven't they? So what sort of thing are they doing? What, how do you get ready for a big move like that? Well, all the equipment's got to be checked, and anything faulty has to be replaced. They all knew it was going to be soon, but even though the clock was ticking down, that was all they knew. They still don't know really when or where or whatever's happening. Um, is there a uniform reaction to, 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 to sort of going into action? Do, do people all think the same way? No. That's a good answer, Gary. Now, for some, anything was better than the endless tedium of training for a war that just didn't ever seem to come. And, of course, there was the eternal optimism of youth. Oh, I've forgotten all about that. Confident, <laughs> it's a long time ago for us, isn't it? <laughs> confident as so many young soldiers had been before them in their own immortality. Now, I'm going to relay what Trooper John Gray of the Recce Troop HQ Squadron has to say. Why would you be nervous? It wasn't going to happen to you. The fi- the fellow sitting next to you, yes, but it wasn't going to happen to you. I think we all felt like that. He's a great character, John. That's he why wasn't. I never sat next to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was another reason you were asked not to sit next to people. Very similar to uh, just patting a dog. <laughs> now, on the 6th of June came the news that D-Day had finally dawned. <gasps> the second front has opened in, 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 in Normandy. Oh, you did well to remember that. They call me a historian, you know. Now, next morning, at a brief 
thing that morning, morning. Uh, next morning, morning. <laughs> a briefing for divisional officers. The overall operational plans were explained in outline and maps were distributed. So now they know that where they're going. Uh, still don't quite know when, but they know they're going to Normandy. Uh, what, what is the 11th Armoured Division meant to be doing? Well, they're to spearhead the reinforcements arriving in the second week as part of 8th Corps. Now, this meant just a few more days to wait. And Charlie Workman, who we've met before on a number of occasions, he remembered their last night in order shot. And you're going to tell us what 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Workman of 1 Troop C Squadron says. The day before we actually moved, we were told in secrecy. There was a dance. We were told to make your arrangements to meet these girls. We went to this dance. It was almost like Waterloo. And that's a, a nice echo because yeah. we, we remember the, the, the ball before Waterloo. We had this big dance. We weren't allowed to say, well, I'm sorry, we're off tomorrow. There's no mention of that at all. When the dance finished, we came right back to the barracks, packed our service dress and all that stuff in boxes. We didn't know when we were going to see that again. At about two or three in the morning, we were driven out to the tanks and the tanks headed off to the concentration area at Gospel. That's uh, 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 Port... Uh, That's Gospel. Yeah, <laughs> it's Gospel, isn't it? I'm trying to remember. Is it? Oh, I got bottled up with Southampton there. That was terrible. Now, on the 11th of June, the main body of the regiment, they set off for Gosport, Gosport. wherever that is. <laughs> it's a mystery. Uh, no, no, they had quite a send-off as they passed through various towns and villages on the way. And this is what Trooper John uh, Gray has to say. We drove the tanks down there on the Portsmouth Road Portsmouth, to Waterlooville. <laughs> all the ladies and the kids were all out on the pavements waving. We were all waving and smiling. The blokes were all chucking their money out of the tanks to the kids. The kids were running around picking it up. Those kids must have been as rich as Croesus by the time we'd gone. There wasn't going to be any need for money where we were going. So they're driving. It's an endless convoy because it's a huge amount. Of, our division takes up much tens of miles of road uh, and uh, and you get that whole sense of the massed power of the allies that's going to descend on the germans uh, who uh, uh, to back up the uh, the invasion forces when they get to a gospel what happens to go straight to sea no what happens to them they go into uh, sealed off concentration areas where the the final stages of waterproofing were complete well, I, bet that, yeah. I bet that pleased them yeah well obviously they have to do it. they hadn't completed the waterproof but now that everything's finally sealed up more bostic <laughs> officers ncos and clerks were busy with a thousand and one administrative tasks but at night the men had plenty of time to think yeah most had never had any experience of combat how would they cope well, I'm going to say what Second Lieutenant Charlie Workman uh, thought. I think one's great thought was, how will I make out on this? Will I be afraid? One was very conscious that I've had all this training. I reckon I know my job. But when it comes to it and the chips are down, how will I face up to death? How will I face up to being wounded? Eisenhower once said that the only thing is fear of fear itself. You're afraid that you're going to be afraid. It was a difficult period in a way. Well, one wasn't sort of saying, oh, I don't want to go. One accepted we were going. But you thought, how will I make out? Not as a tank man, but as an individual. Will I be afraid? Or would I be one of those guys that's led gibbering away? The married bloke was much more aware of what was happening than us. We weren't married. And none of us, as far as I was aware, had even a steady girlfriend. And this is the age they were. They're 18, 19, well, 19, 19, 20. Um... 
Well, uh, I, I think there's a there's a quote that's following that that sort of shows something up. What do you think about what? Yeah, I mean, you've got to think about the relevance of Workman's comments, about the additional stress that married men were under, and it's brought in a sharp relief uh, by the case of one trooper, David Sutherland. And you're going to tell us what uh, uh, a companion of his, trooper James Donovan of B Squadron, has to say. Dave Sutherland, his baby was born just when we were going down to prepare to go on the landing craft. He had a letter from home, and he did remark, isn't it a funny thing that in the letter my parents say, oh, you don't have to worry, we'll look after the baby and your wife. They say that as if they don't expect me to come back, which unfortunately he did not. David got killed. He never even saw his baby. What a... I mean, that, 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 I think, puts it in context for me. And, uh, and, uh, poor old David Sutherland. And some of his family must still, that little, that little baby is now a great hulking adult. Uh, how old will they be? 44 to now. Uh, oh, <laughs> maths with Pete and Gary, 56 and 22. 78. <laughs> well done, Gary. Now, they expected to leave for France at any moment, but the situation in Normandy was not quite going to plan. And there was uh, more frustrating delay. A couple of days more, stuck in sealed-off camps, and uh, <laughs> a lot of them mention that there is endless, tan- irritating Tannoy messages saying that it wasn't time to move yet. So you can, <laughs> you can just imagine, Mister, it's not time to move yet. Thank you. But embar- embarkation finally began from the uh, Gosport Hard on the uh, night of the fourteenth of June, and parties left in various batches over the following twenty-four hours. Now they're travelling in a mixture of landing ship tanks (LSTs) you often see it uh, referred to, and landing craft tanks (LCTs). Um, now, why, why do you think they did that? Why, Gary? Why are they mixing? Why aren't they just on one big ship? Well, because something could happen. Uh, they didn't want all of their. Uh, Second five and four fire yeomanry eggs in uh, one basket. Yeah, because of course, although we had control of the air and the, of the sea, uh, there's there's always the odd submarine. There's mines. There's or or a, a quick raid by aircraft. There's, yeah. So um, now the next bit also meant a lot to me um, um, uh, it, because it's it's the final moments as they move from the camp into Gosport. They they they, they waited to board the ships and they park up in long lines along the residential sh- streets patiently. I'm not sure the British Army ever does anything patiently, waiting for their turn to board. And I'm going to be Trooper Ron Forbes, Four Troop B Squadron. There'd been a lot of army people stopped before going on board ship in Gosport. Well, of course. D-Day and the lead up and after we were parked in a side street with a lot of gardens and bungalows I think the people were a wee bit fed up of tarks, tanks tarks, tarks, tanks being parked outside their door and men sleeping in their gardens that was the only place you could sleep unless you were hardy enough to sleep on the pavement and then of course it's their turn isn't it yeah, now it must have been an amazing sight as the armoured regiments loaded up and uh, this is what trooper Jack Edwards of 4 Troop has to say it was all dark except the inside of the landing craft was lit up so you could see where to drive into. I think we got either 10 or a dozen tanks in. They were put in position and then fastened down with chains so they were all firmly clamped down to the deck. Then we had to go into a large cabin, just bare steel with a few wire bunks. We had to stay there. We weren't allowed out until we were out to sea and it took a long time to get out to sea. The diesel fumes were shocking. You were suffocating. Once out to sea, they let us out on deck, and it was a fine, sunny day. 
Now, you can just imagine all the lines of tanks, the lorries, rumbling down the, the slipway and boarding the ships. But there's one thing. I remember the man telling me this story uh, as if it was yesterday. Uh, the, the, uh, and I'm going to... It's it's Trooper Doug Hayes. He was the MT section of A Squadron. And it, they get a really touching tribute as they go down. And I'd just like you to think about what this means, Gary. Uh, Hayes says this. As we dropped down into Gosport Harbour, there was an old man came out. Old man, he must have been about 50 at most. Uh, he'd obviously served in the 1914 war. He came out to brush his front path. When he saw us coming down, he did all the correct moves, as if he'd had his rifle, presenting arms to every truck that went past, as if we were officers. It touched me. That brought it home to me a bit. Mm. So he's using his broom... As that, if it's that... a rifle and presenting arms. Well, he'd done his bit, hadn't he, Gary, in 1914-18. And I like the fact, and that's the beauty, all these 19-year-olds, they just see him as this old bloke. But if you work out how old that old bloke, what's the oldest he could have been? 50 must have been the oldest. But, of course, to a 20-year-old, a 50-year-old is ancient. What is a 67-year-old to someone of 20? Decrepit. <laughs> now, whose turn is it now, then? For well, a now it's their turn. Yeah. That's right, they're going off. What's happening in Normandy? Battle's raging. The landings on the 6th of June caught the Germans by surprise and forced Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, uh, Army Group B, responsible for the defence of the Atlantic Wall, 7th Army, 15th Army, Wehrmacht Commander in the Netherlands and Panzer Group West. He's Big got a, title, that one. He's got a lot of uh, responsibilities there. He has. Now, he had to commit all his local armoured reserves in a series of desperate, but unfocused counterattacks which failed to throw back the invaders so what did he try and do then well, what's his plan he must have had a plan he's a good general yeah he sought then to hem in the allies while gathering a massed armored force to launch a powerful counterattack of some six armored divisions with the intention of driving between the british and american armies and separating then, them yeah you move either left or right depending on the situation to smash the bridgehead once and for all. Rommel estimated he would be ready to start sometime in early July. So these six armoured divisions will be brought in from elsewhere, from the Russian, from, from somewhere, or back in Germany, or somewhere. To, to uh, So it all takes time. Now, does Rommel have any problems? Yeah, I mean, throughout the campaign, both Rommel and all of the German high command in Normandy, they're fatally hampered in their operational planning by the constant interference of one man. Who do you think that might be? Uh, Hitler. Hitler. Now, with his, with his scathing distrust of his own generals, an absolute refusal to consider any withdrawal, even for the really good, best tactical reasons, they must all stand and fight to the last. So he's remaking the same mistakes he made on the Eastern Front round about the time of Stalingrad and the rest. He's not, he's not learned anything. No, and in those circumstances, Rommel must sometimes have felt that the Allied generals opposing him were the least of his worries. There was a sort of stench of Hitler in the room, and there's a sort of stench and in Fred. the room. <laughs> Fred is getting old, and it's becoming more common. The chief of his opponents was the Supreme Allied, Allied Commander, General Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Dwight, yes. Oh, well, I don't follow that American habit. Um, so, uh, now, who else is there? Uh, well, I'll tell you who else is there. It's Rommel's old pal from the Western Desert. Pal. <laughs> oh, adversary. <laughs> uh, General Bernard Montgomery. Never um, heard of him. Who, who's, he, who's he in command of? He's in charge of the 21st Army Group in Normandy. So, although Eisenhower's 
in overall command. In effect, Montgomery is in charge of the British forces. Uh, well, and, not only British, well, British got, and American. He's um, got the British Second Army, which yeah. is under Lieutenant General Miles Dempsey, and the American First Army, which is under Lieutenant General Omar Bradley. And so he's the overall commander and uh, and uh, a very difficult man. Uh, however, he does... He does have his merits. I mean, he's, very, he's a very controversial figure. Well, he certainly guessed what Rommel was going, was doing, and he drew up plans to counter the German Panzer Builder. Yeah, that's right. Well, what, what, what does he do? Let, let's run through it. Well, first, he plans to launch a series of attritional limited attacks. What, what are they designed to do? Why do this? Well, it's, it's designed to erode away the strength of Rommel's Panzer divisions by dragging them into piecemeal actions so that they can sort of maul them and bash them up a bit before they were ready for a single coordinated so blow. To, that's to a spoiling attack. These are to spoil and uh, to, to, to take the initiative from the Germans. That's easy now, for you to say. It was easy for me to say. Now, uh, secondly, the main Allied attack would only come when? What were they waiting for? Well, when the American First Army was ready to smash through on the right flank of the Allied bridgehead. So when they were ready and, and properly ready, then and only then the British Second Army would take Khan and... and uh, what, what, what are they trying to do in doing that? Hang on. What, why are they doing that? Well, they're trying to attract as, as many of the German armoured reserves as they possibly could. And when they'd done that, what would happen? The Americans would attack. Then and only then would the attack go in. So that, 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 so, so what do you think? What is Montgomery's overall strategy designed to achieve? Well, he's trying to, to minimise casualties, seeking a low risk approach of carefully planned set piece battles on the firm foundations of the 21st Army Group's overwhelming firepower superiority in both air power and artillery. Uh, which are important. I mean, they, they do control the battlefield. They are the main thing. Uh, so the role of his armoured divisions, what would you say that was? So the 11th Armoured amongst them, what, what is their role? Well, it's to assist the infantry to break through and then exploit any breach in the German lines. And at this point, we'll take a short break. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back. Uh, we left the men of uh, the second, five, and four far yeomanry uh, uh now firmly in, ensconced in Normandy. Few of the men of the second, five and fourth army had any idea of what was going on in the battles that were raging across Normandy. Indeed, some of them were more concerned, or perhaps even excited, by some intriguing last-minute additions to their kit bags before they crossed the channel. So we didn't leave them there. They're about to cross the channel. <laughs> A professional introduction, yeah. They're, they're, they're at sea. We're, they're all at sea, just as we are, Gary, at times in these podcasts. And you're going to let us know what Trooper Roy Valance has to say. Yeah, he, he's very excited by these this extra kit. We were issued with some odd things. An escape pack that contained a silk handkerchief, which had a map of Normandy printed on it. A button with a compass on it. Concentrated chocolate, which was dreadful stuff. How did he know that? <laughs> You're not supposed to eat that. And some tablets to keep you awake if you felt tired. That would be Benzedrine, wouldn't it? I think it was, yeah. It's a sort of amphetamine, anyway. Much more welcome. We were issued with tins of cigarettes. 50 gold flake in a tin. And some self-heating cans of soup that you pulled the stopper off and struck with a match. It fizzed and was boiling in a second or two. And you can just... That sounds clever. I like the idea of that. Yeah, I don't think they... uh, Yeah, they don't seem to have them anymore. Now, they'd all boarded. That's where we really left them (laughs) on. I love I love having these adverts. They, yeah, they, they really. I think they add something. <laughs> yeah, confusion largely. <laughs> yeah, and they all boarded the assembled LCTs and LSTs. We've discussed what they are, and the channel crossings begin. Um, what happens? They run into pretty bad weather. This is sort of the early bit warning of the huge storm that would come on the 19th of June. How does the British Army, when afloat, react to bad weather or bumpy waves? Bumpy waves. Well. <laughs> How do you, what normally happens to the British Army when they're put to sea and it gets rough? Well, they're violently sick, usually. <laughs> and what would help them in that? Well, the violent, uh, the, the waves first become choppy and then the, the rough seasickness, it, it becomes endemic. So once you see somebody being sick, you oh, naturally wow. join in. And all round you, you've got the stink of diesel. That doesn't oh, help. Oh, I'm sure that helped. Yeah, oh, lovely. Nothing like a bit of diesel to. Now, as they approach the French coast, this is where I thought they were. The, uh, the prevailing impression was one of uh, astonishment. Gasp! The sea seemed to be covered with vessels. Indeed, many joked that they could barely see the sea for ships. Well, there's also uh, an old friend of ours uh, that, 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 that you noticed when you saw these notes. Yeah. Uh, uh, who, who's there? 
Well, it's a naked demonstration of old-fashioned naval power as the 15-inch guns of a pair of mighty old super dreadnoughts pounded away at the German defensive positions and identified targets up to 20 miles inland. No, one of those. I forgot what the other one was. Well, it was Rodney and the war spy. You look at it, it was Rodney, was it right? <laughs> Yes. How uh, I wonder you? how I knew. You've looked that up, haven't you? No. Uh, the war spy. It's uh, in the next quote. Oh, God. Now, presumably, they're just used as, as platforms for the guns by this Well, by the way, if you remember, the Warspite had been blown up off Sicily. And, Lucky uh, Warspite, they yeah. called it. And uh, I think she was half filled with concrete to keep her afloat. She was really just a platform. But those 15-inch guns are still very accurate. They create a hell of a lot. A big 15-inch shell will really spoil your day. Ah, what, what was that expression? That'll stop them laughing in church. <laughs> now, this is what Lance Corporal Bill Knights of the Recce Troop has to say. As we approached the beaches, there was the war spite and the Rodney All right. battleships pounding away into Khan. It was a heroic sight to see them. It was the first time ever that I'd seen a battleship barking out in anger. <coughs> oh, sorry, Fred. Now, um, so the, the, the regiment, remember, they're coming ashore in bits. Uh, so they land over a couple of two or three days and uh, it's all pretty easy because they landed in very shallow water. Now, well... This made the lads think. Now, we know that waterproofing is a, it's a, it's a sensible precaution, isn't it? it you'd have to do it. Because you could sometimes have to land in six, eight foot of water. Uh, how do you think the man, the men thought? What do you think the men thought when they landed in a few inches? Well, <laughs> they were outraged at the waste of all their efforts. <laughs> and, uh, in well, fact. Were they uncomplaining? Well, they never mentioned it. Now, this is what Trooper Ron Forbes has to say. He mentions it. All that waterproofing, and we landed in about two feet of water. We complained bitterly about all the work we put in for weeks. We could have gone in with nothing. The beach wasn't all that busy. We saw one or two bulldozer Shermans and the usual beach assault vehicles. That that would be the seventy nine. The funnies. The only activity was there was a junkers, a junkers, 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 junkers to me. Eighty eight flying about upstairs, and the sky was littered with red tracer shells. You were so busy occupied in getting off the beach inland that you didn't have much time to see what was to see what was going on on the beach. There was nothing exciting about it. We just drove on through some sand dunes and onto a road. Now, after landing, then, of course, they had to remove the waterproofing. There were two methods. What were they? Well, there's the approved slow and steady method, and then there's the easy, quick method. And uh, there's no prizes for guessing which methods most of the tank crews employed before leaving the beach area. So this is what Trooper Roy Valance, HQ Troop, says. We stopped at the, the heads of the beach and we were told to remove by hand the explosive charges and then to remove the waterproofing. But most of us accidentally fired them off. It was so much cleaner and easier. I think the vital word there is easier. Then we were told to follow little tin signs, arrows that had been stuck into the ground. Ours had 53 on it, which was our serial number. We followed them, eventually caught up with the rest of the squadron in, squadron in a field. Now, what's happening? Well, the various elements of the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yeomanry, they moved into in small convoys about seven miles inland to concentrate just outside the small village of Cully. Now, they're put in around the edges... Of a, of a, of a large field. Uh, 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 so that's the, the Sabre squadrons, the actual, 
uh, squadrons are, are, are gathered around the side, so hiding, if you like, under hedges and such like. Um, we, meanwhile, the headquarters and rear echelons, all that's all the lorries, the support vehicles, everything else, they're in another field close by. Uh, so what would, how would the squadrons, uh, how would they, what would they do? As they, well, they're, they're, na- they're going to make the most of the natural camouflage that's all around them. Although the Allies had air supremacy, as you mentioned, the threat of uh, the Luftwaffe had not yet entirely evaporated. Hit and run raids, Gary. That's what they feared, isn't it? It's not a mass air assault. It's hit and run raids. Yeah, and an entire armoured regiment. Uh, that's pretty much a tempting target. It would be. And this is what Trooper Roy Valance said. A squadron was in a sunken lane, which was overgrown with trees and high hedges. We were pretty well camouflaged naturally. We put our own camouflage nets up over the tanks and bivouacs. Just a net with coloured strips of material. Nobody was allowed to cross a field diagonally. We had to walk around the hedgerows so that there would be no tracks showing from the air. Our bulldozer went along this sunken lane and smoothed the patch where each lane, each tank would be, so they had a level playing field to sleep on, which was quite good. Once we were in, all the vehicle marks had to be covered up. In the daylight hours, we just kept under the camouflage. Uh, now, uh, one thing is, where do the men sleep? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. Where do you sleep in a tank, or, or what do you do? Well, from exercises in the UK, they already knew better than to sleep under the Shermans. Uh-huh. But- that Why? was because on soft ground, the tanks could sink into the mud with fatal consequences for anyone trapped underneath. Now, so, if they were a bit nervous... Um, men would be. Yeah. They could sleep in great discomfort inside the tank at their stations. But for the most part, they got out the bivouac tents that were carried in the storage bins on the back of their tanks. And this is what Trooper Jack Edwards, 4 Troop B Squadron, says. We had two tank sheets covering the tank when you were in a camp. One was a flat one, which we could use as a ground sheet, and the other sheet was shaped so that it made a tent. You could fasten one end to the tank, and the two flaps came down. After we'd been there a day or two, we dug a hole and put the tent over the hole. So they, you had a, using these sheets, you could create a sort of small tent, about 10 foot by 8 foot, and about 4 to 5 foot high. And under there, what do you think they did? Well, you could roll out your, your sleeping bag and, and get a good night's sleep, actually. Yeah, and in daytime, just sit around. Well, you could just sit inside and play cards or chat, you know, particularly if it was raining. Now, in the fields all around them, there's not just the 54 fires. There's a whole of the 29th Armoured Brigade, including the gunner regiments. Uh, now, they are in action because, of course, they've got the range to do it. Um, and uh, what, what do you think gave the clue that they were in action? Well, I should imagine there was quite a lot of noise. This is what Trooper Ron Forbes, 4 Troop B Squadron, says. We were in a sort of field below a raised bit on this, and on this raised bit was the Ayrshire Yeomanry, <laughs> with their 25-pounders all lined up behind us. The first night we were there, the artillery got a night target. They had to fire a complete barrage for half an hour to soften the particular area that the infantry was going to advance over the next day to try and clear a passage. We were all just about deafened lying there. But funnily enough, we went to sleep. Sometimes you can sleep in a noise, and when the noise stops, you wake up. This is what happened to us. When the barrage was over, nobody could get to sleep after that, even when it was quiet. I like that. <laughs> I should point out, if uh, any of the listeners heard any whimpering through that, that, oh, was, that, that was, was Fred, not, not Fred us. Fred seems to be dreaming. <laughs> Now, Robert Nurse, he'd been an office clerk in Bristol before his call-up, 
Now, in this strange new world at war, he was a Sherman driver. Uh, at Cully, <laughs> I like this story. He recalled a most unfortunate accident as he climbed in his turret. And this is what Trooper Robert Nurse of Second Troop has to say. The third Royal Tanks were across a road in a similar field. I made the mistake of accidentally firing the smoke bomb. It was electrically fired through the turret ring and I accidentally pressed the button. It landed in the third Royal Tanks adjutant's tent. I thought, oh, God, court martial. I rushed across and apologised and he was ever such a nice character, a captain. He said, oh, forget it. We were still within range of German guns and there were signs, dust means death. And there was this huge pool of smoke rising over the adjutant's tent. He wasn't best pleased, but he was very nice about it. And he was, uh, nurse was really relieved because what could have happened, Gary? What could have happened? Well, there's no uh, subsequent splatter of German shells crashing down on the adjutant's team. That would have spoiled spoil his day, wouldn't it? <laughs> now, the regiment had practiced living on hard rations, but now they're doing it for real. Well, what, what, so what is hard rations? Well, they're introduced to the composition ration system. It's otherwise known as compo, which we still had when I was uh, in the army in the, the 70s and early 80s. And uh, that's how it was known to the men. This is what would sustain them for the most part for the rest of the war. All right. Now, what is it? Uh, who's going to explain that for us? Well, Trooper Jack Edwards is going to explain. And he says, we got compo rations. They came in a 14-man pack. It lasted a tank crew three days. Any of us cooked it because it was just a matter of warming up tins. Some of it was McConaughey's stew. That's from the, the First World War. Stewed steak. The potatoes were diced in a tin. You just warmed them up. There was cheese in a tin. That that was still there, processed cheese, in the uh, the 70s and 80s when, when I was in the army. You and I quite it. liked it. You loved it. That and compost sausages were my favourite, although you couldn't go to the toilet for about a week and a half afterwards. <laughs> so he goes on to say, there was cheese in a tin, hardtack biscuits, bars of chocolate in a tin. The tea was compost tea, tea, sugar and milk mixed as a powder. And you just stirred it up with hot water and you got a reasonable cup of tea out of it. Breakfast was a bit of, well, sometimes it was a, a tin sausage, just sausage meat marked so that you could cut it into sections. You didn't get a lot out of it. Some packs had tinned bacon. You opened it up and it came out like a tin of worms, all greasy rinds. The bacon was horrible. We once had a tin of American bacon and it was just like proper bacon. It was great. Now, this is basic food, but there's a point to it, isn't it? That, that, well, what is the idea of compo rations, of, of, of composition rations? What is the idea? Well, it's, it's designed to ensure that regular rations are delivered to the hundreds of thousands of frontline soldiers rather than to provide any kind of gourmet experience. Yeah, that, 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 this is plain, unimaginative food. Uh, but what's the what, what's the most important thing? Well, it's easy to move around. You can stack it in huge piles, and most importantly of all, it doesn't go off. Of course, yeah. Uh, the men they they might not have liked it much, but it keeps body and soul together. It, it basically you don't go hungry, and you are a functioning soldier. Uh, it enables them to fight on. They've got a full stomach. Uh, that that bulk feeding that's the aim, and and that's what it achieved, isn't it? 
Yeah, now some of the men would have access to the simple food provided by the regimental cooks, but most were thrown back on their own resources and had to cook for themselves on primer stoves, especially once the campaign became more mobile. Now, what's probably more important than food to the average British soldier of the time? Well, it's a regular cigarette supply at that point. Now, you smoked when you were in the army. I did smoke, yeah, and and it did seem almost as important as food at times. It was endemic, wasn't it? I mean, pretty well everyone seems to have smoked uh, in, in the nineteen uh, in, during the war years. Yeah, and perhaps... Not everyone, but a lot of people. Yeah, but perhaps it was the additional stress. But, but men seemed to crave them. And uh, once more, you're going to tell us what Trooper Roy Valance of HQ Troop says. Each man got a tin of 50 cigarettes a week, but we had stacks of them in the tank. I don't know whether some didn't smoke. We always had plenty of cigarettes. I smoked all day. The days were very long days once we were in action you'd smoke 40 a day um it seems a generous weekly ration 50 and there seems to have been a lot about but but i think you've got to remember how much people used to smoke i mean now 20 a day seems a lot 40 a day seems a real lot but in those days chain smoking was a real thing wasn't it i mean even in the army in your time yeah and you could smoke up smoke up to 80 cigarettes a day uh, it's and it's called chain because you you'd, you'd light one from the previous one absolutely now a minor black market developed in cigarettes <laughs> with the uh, few non-smokers well-placed to cash in or to be generous to their pals, depending on their inclination. There Anything was also else? occasionally oh. a rum ration. And this is what Trooper Roy Valance has to say about the rum. The rum came in one-gallon stone jars. That sounds like the first of all, doesn't it? Yep. The, the ration was a pint between 20 men. One chap would go up from the troop with a mug which would hold a pint. He'd bring it back, and that would be divided in four mugs for the four tank crews. We'd just pass it round and have a sip each. You'd probably glug a lot, knowing you. I don't think the mug would get back. <laughs> now, one essential part of life was uh, latrine provision. Ooh. When they were all closely packed in one locality, such as Cully, uh, there would be proper dug latrines that everyone was expected to use without fail. And uh, this is what Trooper Gordon Fiddler of Four Troop says. There was always a squadron latrine. Well, when I say a latrine, it was a big slit trench, a couple of poles sticking out, pole across the top, and you hang your arse out of there. That was the latrine. Everything was there for you. And if you didn't use it, you were a bit of a fool. Before there was any movement from the area, movement, unfortunate use of words, <laughs> before there was any movement from the area, that would be closed up. Somebody would have to go out with a couple of shovels and fill the whole latrine in. Now, one of my favourite little stories about this period was a, a bit of superb enterprise by some enterprising, well, that's French women. Um, and uh, Trooper, I'll let Trooper James Donovan tell of uh, B Squadron tell the story. A funny thing happened there with the French civilians. We suddenly woke up one morning and in the far corner of the field, opposite, field opposite, a tent, English isn't my first language, a tent appeared. Everybody was saying, Gore, what's that? When the military police went in to investigate, it was a couple of French ladies had set up a brothel looking for business. They didn't stop for the war. (laughs) They were definitely moved on. By the military police. Hmm. Now, like most of the rest of Normandy in 1944, Cully had been a battleground and there was plenty of evidence still dotted around the local countryside. In their twos and threes, the men were drawn 
to the burnt out carcasses of tanks like moss to a flame. And uh, I'm going to uh, say what Trooper Gordon Fiddler of Four Troop uh, says about that. What did frighten us was about a 100 yards from where we were camped, there was a black Sherman and an armoured car. We went over to these. 20 yards away from the armoured car, there was a shell hole through the turret, and we could smell this turret. Clambered up onto the wheel, looked in the turret, and the driver and commander were splattered all around the turret. Bits of meat all over the place. You could see where the shell had gone through and come out the other side. The smell was horrendous. It was a hot day and this didn't help. Then there was the Sherman. That was absolutely brewed up, just nothing left of anything really. They'll burn or smoulder for days and days. We weren't too happy. Oh dear, why did we join the tank corps? We didn't think it could be like this. Now this is where they're starting to get just an inkling of what lay ahead of them. And uh, and, and and what made it even worse is that they could see that one of the things that had been done because people knew about Shermans. They didn't, but people did. They'd fitted some extra armour to, to the Shermans, and uh, they were able to see that this had been no help at all, and once again, you're going to be Trooper Jack Edwards, 4 Troop. We'd had extra plates welded on the side to cover ammunition bins, and there was a hole through one of the extra plates. The tank was just a shell. It had completely burnt out. There was a grave at the side with a piece of wood stuck in. Somebody had pencilled a note on the wood, Four, possibly five. So I thought, well, the crew must have all been in bits. It wasn't very encouraging. We thought, oh, good God, things are worse than we thought. However, how do you think most of them console themselves? How do you think uh, John Gray, the one we... What would he have thought? Well, he's going to say, oh, well, it couldn't happen to me. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you, this, this is coming to the end of this episode. But the officers, the NCOs and, and the men, they've all still got a lot to learn, haven't they, about what tank warfare, what the Sherman was going to be like, and, and what it was like fighting in the Bacage, the Bacage country where it's all hedges and where you can be ambushed at the drop of a hat, you can't, you've got no view, it's not like the desert open ground. Um, well, they're going to the, find out soon enough, Pete, aren't they? Oh, wow. On the 26th of June, 1944, the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yeomany go into action for the first time, it, 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 and, and it's that's Operation Epsom, and uh, I think... Uh, I, and it's a, they're finding it off to the races, Gary, for the first time. And it would be a terrible story. And we'll be dealing with that in the next, uh, uh next in this series on the 5 and 4 for Harmony. If, uh, if, uh, you, um, if you want to learn more, then my book on the 5 and 4 for Harmony, it's just a coincidence it's out at the time these podcasts are out, just a complete coincidence, is, uh, Burning Steel. Uh, the story of an, ar- uh, uh, an armoured regiment at war, uh, and it should be out on 12th of May. I'm looking forward to that. You've got a copy. I can see it on your shelf. I, I have. It's well-thumbed. Published by Profile Books. Yeah, that's right. And well-thumbed. <laughs> and well-thumbed. Not red, just no, thumbed. Yeah. <laughs> just thumb, thumb. Anyway, it's it, the story... I mean, it's taken a while to get going, but that reflects the nature of what happened to the lads, doesn't it? They had this four, four and a half years of getting ready, but it, all hell is going to break loose at uh, Operation Epsom. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?